Hi guys, welcome to Library Overload. This is Tavia. And this is Susie. Don't forget to check out our blog, which is libraryoverload.home.blog. And also check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Library Overload there. Before we get into the doom and gloom that is this this week's episode, I didn't really think that through. Right. I mean, we're going to be we're going to be pretty serious today. I know. And now like are we even going to be funny like normal? Cuz I'm pretty sure people come for my jokes. Sure they do. <laughs> I I mean, I think we'll have some brevity at some point, but maybe. It's definitely going to be a more intense episode. Yeah. But before we get into that, Happy American football season. Yay. Yay. <laughs> I I can't. I know. I, don't. I know. Poor, poor Tavia yes. is a Tennessee Vols fan. And it's not yes. going well. It's not going well. <laughs> I claim the Florida Gators, but I'm not a, like, I'm not a huge... Back. I, I'm just not a huge football fan. However, I do support the Tennessee Titans, and we are recording this on a Sunday, and we just whipped some bear's ass, <laughs> and it was amazing. So I'm in, like, a great mood. Birds are singing. like <laughs> That's so funny. And then we're going to talk about I know. sadness. I know. So, All right. Sorry. Well, in honor and remembrance of September 11th, we're going to do an episode themed around that slash military-esque. I'm I'm really weird. I am very much a pacifist, but for some reason, I love books written by military heroes. I love to hear about, like, the SEALs, their training, like, all these covert ops. Like, I love it all. Sign me the hell up for all of it. <laughs> and so when we said we were going to do a September 11th one, I was like, could I also read a military book? But isn't it also related to September 11th in, in a roundabout sort of way? It is in a roundabout sort of way. Do you want me to go first? Sure. And I'll just, okay. Well, then mine, my first one is my military book that I wanted to read, and it's called SEAL Team 6 Memoirs of an Elite Navy SEAL Sniper. And this is written by Howard E. Wasden. Now, he was a member of SEAL Team 6, which is the SEAL team that eventually took out Osama bin Laden. However, he was in SEAL Team 6 in the early 90s. Ah, So it's just SEAL Team 6, you know, like 20 years ago. I gotcha. That makes sense. Almost 30. Vomit. (laughs) So this was really interesting. I, again, I love covert op stuff. <laughs> I love everything about it. So That's funny. I really, really wanted to read something about SEAL Team 6. I didn't mm-hmm. know the timeline of him being in it, but it's fine. Like, it was fine. So this is Howard E. Wasden. He is He was a Navy SEAL in the early 90s, joined the Navy, and started in... Um, search and rescue things like that and then moved into the seal training which is horrific mm-hmm. and horrible and awful but got through that and became a seal was on seal team two went to marine sniper school which is the best sniper school in around i guess and um when he became a sniper, SEAL Team 6 was needing a sniper, so they recruited him. Are this are the SEAL teams, like, ranked, or are they just numbered by when they were created or something? Or They are, oh, crap. I think even numbered SEAL teams are on the East Coast. I gotcha. Odd number SEAL teams are on the West Coast. However, SEAL Team 6 was not created until there was a need for very specific hostage situation boarding boats things like that that takes severe very technical skill seal team six is made and designed Uh for that reason okay that's cool so that was really cool because i had no idea what the different seal teams were Mm -hmm. but yeah even numbers are on east coast odds are on west coast 
I will double check that fact, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. Cool, cool. So he was in the, you might know of this battle because you're a history nerd. Um, he was in the Battle of Mogadishu, Mogadishu mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Somalia mm-hmm. and uh, almost lost his legs in the battle. There were 18 Americans killed, 73 wounded in this 24-hour period battle. Right. Yeah. So he was there for that. Well, that's cool. He was injured on his way trying to help out one of the Black Hawks that went down, hence the movie Black Hawk Down. I actually had no idea that that was the movie based on this battle that he was Mm -hmm. in until he actually mentioned it. Oh, that's cool. So he was shot twice in that that instance. He was shot once, was still able to go, then shot a second time and almost lost his leg. Wow. So, but yeah, he was injured on the way to try to help the survivors of one of the Black Hawks that were taken down. Now, backing up. This guy is a SEAL. So, of course, he is the baddest of asses, elite, amazing, and he was kind of egotistical. And yeah. I, did, I didn't love it. I can imagine. I could see that. Yeah. Um, it takes a special kind of person to, to do that. It does. He talks about being brought up in southern, I think it was southern Georgia? In Georgia. Uh, brought up. I actually, I lie. I think it was northeast Georgia, close to the Carolinas. Gotcha. And he talks about how his stepfather was incredibly abusive. And so when he went to SEAL Bud's training, how they do their training, it's it's terrible if you ever read about it or anything. The What they put those guys through in order to make them mentally, physically tough enough to deal with the stuff that they have to deal with the just the training to get into the program is awful and when you want to quit you are absolutely allowed to quit but you have to go up in front of everyone and ring this bell three times yeah I've heard of that and he kept saying like he was talking about going through this and he was like yeah this is hard but I don't I don't know why they're quitting like if you wanted to be a seal so bad you should have known it was going to be this tough like I've been through worse than this. And I was just like, dude, could you not? (laughs) Like, they put you right at the cusp of being hypothermic. Mm -hmm. They made them run to and from meals, like miles to eat and miles Mm -hmm. to come back. Like, just almost drown them. It just ridiculous crap that they Mm -hmm. had to go through. And he's over here like, it's not even that bad. There's Mm -hmm. a TV show called The Selection where they take a group of random people and volunteers, I'm sure, and put them through Bud's training to see how much, how long they can make it. Daniel was telling you and telling you to watch it, you and Chris. But I don't remember him <laughs> telling me that. Yeah. Well, he talks so much about TV and movies. Sometimes I just tune him this out. This is true. But yeah, like the first day, they started with like 30 people. And yeah. by the end of the first hour or the first day or something like that, they were down by, they were down to like six people. Yeah, I'd be the one first to tap out mm-hmm. i'm a big old sissy when it comes yeah. to stuff like but that we we did watch a few episodes or i watched a few he watched can i show. sign chris up for that I, I think you have to like agree to participate your own self Damn. i don't think you can if he volunteer was a, people if he was a stronger swimmer i would i would totally get him to do it wow but yeah he just he just doggy paddles <laughs> like if we were if we were in the ocean and a riptide came i would have to save him like That's he'd funny. be, he'd be SOL. Um, the one episode I did watch, they had them under in a pool and it was like freezing and they like put weights on them mm-hmm. and they made them stand on the bottom of the pool mm-hmm. and they did it like for so ever, that's not a word, <laughs> for several minutes at a time mm-hmm. and they couldn't come out. And if they come out, they had to quit immediately. Yeah. And Howard Wozden was talking about, they would tie their legs together essentially. So they're like mermaids and they would have to go to and from the end of the pool. And then they would also have to go down, touch the bottom, come up, go side to side, but also don't touch the sides. And they would be watching for it. And it was just, it was bananas. Oh yeah. And they couldn't swim. They had to just like float. They couldn't, they couldn't touch the bottom, but they couldn't paddle or do anything. They Mm -hmm. had to just be there. Yeah. Some sort of like... It's crazy. Training resistance. Of yeah. Some kind or something like that. But uh, it's just it a really whole lot of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and like it's it's teaching you essentially to keep your your body and your breath 
everything under control. Your heartbeat, like and remain calm. Yes, like never be flustered. When he was in the middle of this battle, he kept saying like, "Right now, on a fear level of zero to ten, I'm like a two. And then after he got shot the second time, and is possibly gonna le- lose his leg, he's like, "At a f- right now, I'm about at like a five or six. And I was like, "Could." Could you please? (laughs) It was it was kind of annoying to deal with that kind of ego. Like I get it. You're a seal. You're Mm -hmm. amazing. Like you are the peak of all humans. Chill. I get that. Yeah, I could see that happening. Yeah. But you enjoy it overall? I did. It was interesting and it actually led me to another book that I am looking forward to reading. And it is called The Killing School Inside the World's Deadliest Sniper Program by John David Mann. Nice. Um, that sounds it's, just like something you'd want to read. It's so cool. So these snipers, you know how they get into these ghillie suits and they have to put the moss and the leaves and stuff on their bodies? Well, in sniper school, when they're done, their final thing is they have to go out to this huge field and they have to slowly make their way closer to their trainers. They have to get within 200 yards of them without being spotted, moving anything. And... It's so cool. There are videos of them doing that, and there will be, like, pictures, and you'll be like, spot the sniper. And it's, I don't don't know where they are. And they're right there. It's so cool. That is cool. I want to watch. I want to read. (laughs) That sounds fun. That sounds interesting. Well, my first book that I'm going to talk about is called The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda, and the Road to 9-11. And that's by Lawrence Wright. And he wrote this in 2006, so he wrote it and published it before bin Laden was killed. Gracious. Yeah, so he didn't That was know. a quick turnover. Yeah, but it it was incredibly fascinating. It was ridiculously detailed. Yeah. They He starts in the 1940s, I think 1947. Mm, this with, is right up your alley. Yes, it is. With Syed... He's an educator whose book Milestones was the foundation of radical Islam, Mm. which became what Osama bin Laden built his belief system on, what he built Al-Qaeda on. Okay. So it was really interesting that it went that far back to break down and show you this is what happened this is why they believed this this is why they believed that this is where he went crazy Interesting. <laughs> yeah he was like a relatively normal person until high school and then he had an, a radical teacher hmm. who was in the muslim brotherhood which was saeed kupta's one of his okay. uh, programs that he was involved in and from there bin laden kind of just went crazy Mm. but i i didn't realize back when all of all of this was happening or whatever i didn't look into it too much but he was from saudi arabia yeah and he was a bajillionaire i didn't know that yeah his dad had moved from yemen to saudi in the 1930s ish and built an empire Hmm. Um, a construction company he built like the first road ever existed in saudi arabia and he became really close with the royal family my god and so by the time Bin Laden came along, he was stupid rich. And he got like $7 million a month or something oh my God. in stipend. And that's how he funded wow. pretty much everything. Until Saudi, the Saudi government realized, hey, this guy's kind of crazy. Hmm. And they cut him off and they took his passport so he couldn't go home. And, and at that point, he formed up with Amin al all Zawahiri, it's all mm-hmm. Zawahiri, and they formed, they put their two things together, their two organizations together, and that's where the plot of 9-11 was born, mm-hmm. and he moved from Saudi Arabia to, he went to Afghanistan in the 80s, and that's when he formed Al-Qaeda, was when the Afghans were fighting the Soviets, mm-hmm. and he was on America's side at that point. He took our help. He liked us, but at some because point... Because we gave them what? Right. At some point, he started to equate the the loss of Muslim values as a Western intrusion, hmm. and that America was directly to fault for that. Mm. But backing up a little bit, I have a few quotes that I want to read, just because 
this book is so detailed and it's kind of hard to explain at some points. Mm-hmm. So I just have a couple of quotes. One goes all the way back to Said Gupta. And it says, one line of thinking proposes that America's tragedy on September 11th was born in the prisons of Egypt. So Said Gupta was an Egyptian. Okay. And um, Al-Zawahiri was an Egyptian as well. Human rights advocates in Cairo agree that torture created an appetite for revenge, first in Said Gupta and later in his acolytes, including Al-Zawahiri. The main target of the prisoner's wrath was the secular Egyptian government, but a more powerful current of anger was also directed towards the West, which they saw as an enabling force behind the repressive regime. They held the West responsible for corrupting and humiliating Islamic society. Hmm. And that's kind of where the whole thing started. Gotcha. And then we go off to the second half of the book, And it talks about the failings within the American government Mm. that led to 9-11. So this was really hard to to listen to. Basically, the CIA and the FBI separately had all of the information they needed Mm. to stop bin Laden way before Mm -hmm. anything ever happened. But they refused to communicate with each other because, like, the two top guys of the counterterrorist units were bitter rivals, and they wouldn't talk to each other. And so the CIA has no authority or no jurisdiction in the United States. So they had all of this intelligence, but they would never give it to the FBI to act on it. That was partially in my my next book as well, Mm -hmm. just how hugest communication breakdown of all time happened before this. And it says, um, this quote is, Mindahar and Hamzi were two of the hijackers. They arrived in America 19 months before 9-11. The FBI had all the authority it needed to investigate these men and learn what they were up to, but because the CIA failed to divulge the presence of two members of Al-Qaeda who were active that they knew were active members, the hijackers were free to develop their plot. Yeah, it's it's hard Mm -hmm. to hear. It's hard to read. Yep, and then another is a guy named Khalid and Bin Laden, Zawahiri, and the hijackers met in Malaysia to finalize the plans. And they knew Khalid, that's a made-up name. They knew he was one of the I people. I was like, DJ Khaled? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, it was his code name. They all made up jihadi names okay. to cover up their real names. Okay. And they all met and they had pictures. They had pictures of this guy with these other people. However, the CIA blocked the Bureau's investigation and allowed the 9-11 plot to continue. Mm. So, like, we could have stopped this. We could have stopped all of this so much further back. But because there was a breakdown, they wouldn't let them. I wonder how those people feel. I wonder how they felt on September 12th. Well, the one guy, the main guy from the Bureau, from Mm -hmm. FBI, his name was John Mm O'Neill. He was a crazy character. Before, he had a wife and three girlfriends. Wonderful. They didn't know about each other. They all met at his funeral. <gasps> oh, but, my God. It's like Carrie Underwood's. Right. What song is that? It's like a black limousine or something yeah. like that. Crap. What is that called? I don't know, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But he was disillusioned with the whole thing, and he retired from the Bureau, and he went to work security at the World Trade Center on August 23rd, 2001, and he was the main FBI guy, and he died that day. Ooh. Yeah. And then all of his girlfriends <laughs> met up at their funerals. Ooh. Yeah, that was a crazy story. But one of the other guys, this is one other quote. He says, whatever has happened, someday somebody will die. The public will not understand why we were not more effective in throwing every resource we had at this problem. Mm-hmm. And I was like, right? Like, mm-hmm. why did so much miscommunication, like, you guys knew something was coming. And they kept saying, and they kept telling their supervisors, and nobody would listen. Mm-hmm. So it was just these two divisions, and then they would just fight with each other. Because nobody was taking terrorism seriously at that point. Because mm-hmm. we were, like, 10 years out from the Cold War, and they were still thinking Cold War mentality right. instead of the new threats that have developed. But it's also like, well, we're America. No one dare touch yeah. us. We're the greatest country in the world. Yeah. 
<laughs> Every time anyone says that, we're the greatest country in the world, it reminds me of the, the TV newsroom. show, The Newsroom. Mm-hmm. We should put that video up on I the will. blog as well. But it's just brilliant. He goes on this whole tirade about why America is not the yeah. greatest country in the world. He's like, we're 53rd in education. We're... 23rd and un- unemployment or something. Mm-hmm. He just goes on this whole tirade and it's brilliant. And the yeah. girl who said it was like, uh, Never right? Yeah. It's one of the greatest scenes in TV, mm-hmm. like ever. It's just, yeah. it's, it's amazing. It's so good. Because you're just like, damn. And it's son. like the first yeah. clip of the show, of yeah. season one, episode one. It's the first thing that happens yeah. and it sets the whole mm-hmm. tone for the rest of the series. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's really good. But this book was so, so. So fascinating. So was this just everything up until September 11th? Yes. Okay. Well, okay. it kind of goes, it, there's a section in the back called Principal Players, and it tells you the people that survived, what they've done since then. But it was written in 2006, so it okay. wasn't that much later. Gotcha. Um, so the people that survived, is it talking about good guys, bad guys, both? All of them. Okay. And at this point, they didn't know where Bin Laden was, and so we right. was. But... It did say there was a guy they found in Pakistan. And after 9-11 happened, the United States dropped flyers in Pakistan and Afghanistan from planes with bin Laden and Zawahiri's pictures on it. And they said, if you know, if you see these people, call this number. Mm -hmm. Well, this guy, he saw them come over on camels or horses or something. And he was like, hey, it's the people from here. But I'm in Pakistan and I don't have a phone. And then nobody else ever saw them again. Sure. You know, in this book, they hadn't been captured yet. Mm -hmm. But, like, you want someone from Pakistan to call you. Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. It's like you don't have a brain. Right. Yeah. Sometimes corporations and big, like the CIA, the FBI, whatever, sometimes they... They don't use logic or they, they don't understand. And then I think this is a big part of some of the breakdown of what happened. They don't understand a culture that is not American. Mm -hmm. Like they don't understand a place that's not America. So they just throw American solutions at it. But also what's crazy is the CIA, like you said, is an international group organization organization and they have boots on the ground in almost every single country. You know. Yeah. Like, don't be dumb. In here, it said that when Alex Station from the CIA was first founded in 1996, when they first, Bin Laden was first on the radar, mm-hmm. they had two Arabic-speaking CIA operatives. Two. Hmm. That's it. And the one who was very, very involved in this... He found, they they captured Bin Laden's bodyguard in Yemen. And he went over there and interrogated them. And that's how they found out who the hijackers were and how they were related to Al-Qaeda and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Hmm. Uh, But seriously, at that point, they had two people in the whole of the CIA who could speak Arabic. Because they were that unfocused on terrorism. Sure. Because again... We're America. Yeah, they did not think it was going to be a thing at all. But it was it was a completely in-depth look at how Al-Qaeda was formed, why it was formed, how they thought, why they thought. And then it goes to the Bureau and the breakdown of the Bureau and the CIA. And it was just, it was really, really extensive. It's a big book. Yeah. It's almost 500 pages. Yeah. I think it's like 490 something. Mm-hmm. Big old book. But it was so interesting that it it read quickly yeah that's a lot of information yes i mean they started in 1947 that's That's, crazy and then they he went he said to understand osama bin laden you have to understand his dad so then they told the life story of his dad and then they went and told his life story and they told i know nothing of him so that's it was fascinating i didn't know anything about him either really Hmm. but to understand and to see his brain work it, it was really interesting. He was a bajillionaire, mm-hmm. and he gave away all of his money. He financed all of the things that they did. He paid all of the jihadists that came for the longest time until he was cut off. And he gave away so much money because he wanted to live like a pauper. Like well, that's he, that's he, nice of him. Right, and his kids hated it. I bet. 
and his first wife hated it. She, uh, he married her when he was 17 and she was 14. Gross. And did she stay with him the whole time? She stayed with him up until the last bit in Afghanistan. I think she left him before he went into, maybe she left him right after 2001 when he went into hiding or something like that. Because I know one of his wives was taken down with him. Three of them were. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did some research into that. Three of his wives, um, but the first wife had 11 children by him. And she decided that she was done with this lifestyle because that's not who she had married. She married a really rich young Saudi, Mm -hmm. not this guy. So she went back to Saudi Arabia with her kids. Wow. And... Then he stayed with his three other wives, and then he was going to take on a fifth wife. Technically, in Islam, you can have four wives. Hmm. So, technically, he could take on the fifth because his first one was not in the picture. Right, and this is really interesting because divorce in Islam is up to the man. Of course. And all he has to do is say, I divorce you. That's it? Yep. So, Osama bin Laden's dad, they said they lost count after 22 but he would marry someone in the morning and sleep with them of course. and divorce them at night. Sure. And he went Why? through, like, he had that, he had, like, 50 kids or something like that, like, 22 wives, and they said they stopped counting. But he would take teenage brides well into his 60s. That's disgusting. Yeah. They sound like a great family. Yeah. But the Bin Laden Corporation, the Bin Laden Group, mm-hmm. is still really active in construction in Saudi Arabia. It's still wow. a thing. Uh, his family still I how runs much, all of that. How much, like, just the normal people of that family, how much they have been harassed, assaulted, well, probably it, some sort of torture. A lot of it, they sent them after him to try to get him to, to give up. Hmm. They said, you could come back to the country if you'll say you're sorry and you'll stop being a terrorist. Mm-hmm. You can come home. You can have all your money back. And he said no. He didn't want it. He didn't want any of that. He wanted to... You know, do his thing. Terrorism is better. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. yeah, so his his normal family, which I mean, quite extensive. Yeah. His mom, he was the only son his mom had by the dad. Okay. And he, <laughs> the dad was a character. So he would marry the women and he would divorce them. So he was married to his mom, I think two years or something like that. Mm. And he divorced her and then he would give his ex-wives as presents to his friends no yes so she got lucky because he gave her to one of his executives of his company so then osama moved away from Mm. and they moved to Jeddah, which is in saudi arabia and he actually grew up pretty well off there too Hmm. so yeah wow it was crazy but it was really 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 fascinating that's very well researched Mm mm-hmm that's very interesting. Yeah. And I also listened to some of it on audiobook so I could pick up the names and stuff. Sure. Because <laughs> it's a lot of Arabic in there. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. The one last thing I do want to say about it is this one last quote Osama said. And it was, technically it's a quote from the Quran. Okay. And it says, right before... 9-11 happened. I think it was the day before. He gathered his people together and he was talking to them and he said this quote. And he says, wherever you are, death will find you, even in the looming tower. And it's from the Quran and it was so like wow. prophetic. Why was he saying that to his people? He was telling them what was going to happen without really telling them what was going to happen. But was he saying that to his people, like, you will die? No, or, he was gathering them was together he, to he kind of like say something's this. happening, something big is coming, stay tuned. Wow. And then he quoted that thing from the Quran. Mm. And he had biographers and video people with him all the time, like, watching what he did. Yeah. Where's the documentary about him? I, I think that the United States, the CIA and everything probably really wanted to get rid of it and scrub it and, hmm. you know, hmm. <laughs> bury it underneath because he, the Bin Laden family was friends with the United States, with the government. They were in the royal family of Saudi Arabia. So they were, you know, friendly with the United States. So mm-hmm. it was, I'm sure they wanted all of that buried. Yeah. Wow. That was very fascinating. Hmm. I can continue it. talking about it. <laughs> it sounds like it. 
My next one is called The 11th Day, 9-11, The Ultimate Account. This is by Anthony Summers and Robin Swan. There are multiple books about the day of Mm 9-11. I was going to read Fall and Rise, and it's almost a thousand pages. I was, I, I, I still want to, because there are so many books. What do they all have that the other doesn't? Right. Do I I need to, I just have to read them all now to find out. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why I started with the one I did is because it's a background. Yeah. I wanted all of the background information I could get so I could understand what happened this day. That sounds exactly like you. Yes, it does. And I appreciate the miniature lesson that I got without having to read the book. Right. So I do appreciate that you did that. You're welcome. So this one, it starts, this is a very big book too. It, um, with all of the notes and sightings and things like that, it was over 600 pages. Oh, wow. So this is, this is very large, but luckily a big chunk of it was, were notes and Mm -hmm. citing their sources and things like that. Mine had a lot of pictures in it too. Mm -hmm. So this one starts so it's it's broken up into sections the first section is of course an exact play-by-play of those few hours where the actual incident happened so it starts off with the people on the planes them um being taken over persons on the planes calling their family members Mm -hmm. like it was horrible i was reading it at work and I was just Ooh. like, okay, I'm going to put it down now. Yeah. Like, we both texted each other several times with, yeah. I have to stop reading this yeah. for a minute. I, I can't I had to take this. It, it took me probably two weeks to get through it because it was, it was a lot. Once I got through the first section, I was okay. But that first section, man, it was awful. The, the next book I'm going to talk about, I had to keep taking long breaks because mm-hmm. I was like, I can't. Mm-mm, yeah, I can't do this anymore. It's it's so much. It's so much heartbreaking, awful, awful stuff. It is mm-hmm. so. Um, it was a play by play of the day's events. Um, phone calls from two family members from the planes. It talked about there was especially at the at Ground Zero how there was so much going on. And no one knew who was in charge, what to do, where to go. Because these are the the two tallest buildings in America. How do what do you, these aren't going to fall? They're they're steel. Like it's not mm-hmm. going to fall. It's going to be fine. And then you have people over here going, "No, guys, it's going to fall." And talking about just the degree in which the fires were burning mm-hmm. was just astronomical. One of the things in my book. Sorry to You're jump fine. into there. Osama bin Laden, he said, we had no idea that the buildings would fall. He said the most we hoped for was that the plane would crash and it would kill everybody above mm-hmm. the where they landed. Mm-hmm. And he said, so when we were tallying, which is crazy, when they were tallying how many people they hoped to have killed, he said, we never dreamed we'd be as successful as we were. He's, Way to go, you. Right. He said he knew from his construction days with his family's construction company that the metal structures would heat up. And he thought maybe the top half of the one building would bend over to the other. Mm-hmm. But they never imagined both buildings would come down. And that was a huge conspiracy on why did they topple? Why did they implode like they did instead of falling over? Mm -hmm. It was a huge conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. And there was an entire section dedicated to conspiracy, which Uh I had, I got so angry. I had to skip pages because it's infuriating. People are such assholes. Yeah. I don't really, I'm not really a conspiracy theorist on this, but I know there are lots and lots and lots of things out there. Yes. And we'll never know everything. Is, and I didn't know that the CIA and other departments knew of happenings beforehand. Mm-hmm. That's always been addressed and it's always been talked like the Bush administration kind of let it happen because they wanted money mm-hmm. and things like that. And that's not really the case. Like They had a, a peripheral awareness of it. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's like, okay, something's going to happen, but what? Like, right. how do we... 
like, okay, we can go on high alert, but, mm-hmm. like, what are we... And terrorism was such... Especially terrorism in the United States was such a far-fetched concept. They could possibly imagine anyone being able to pull this off. Exactly. It's such a far-fetched idea. A hostage-taking of four separate planes, different multiple locations... They originally had 15 planes planned. Jesus. Yeah. But they can only get the the four. Jeez. I know that one of the hijackers, his name was flagged when he checked into the airport. And they let him go in. And they let him go in. But don't worry, his luggage didn't go. Yeah, it said, um, I think I watched, I was watching a documentary. Because I liked to research everything, you know. Yeah. And this is very, there's tons of documentaries on this. I spent so much time on Wikipedia Mm -hmm. in the midst of reading all this. Yeah, me too. So I get it. Yeah. Yeah. But one of them said that as soon as it happened, one of the calls to the president was from someone in the CIA. And we said, he said, we know this is Al Qaeda. Mm -hmm. And they said, how do you know that that fast? And he said, well... One of the people on the flight manifest was flagged as an Al-Qaeda member. And the guy, like, president lost his ever-loving mind and said, you let him get on the plane anyway, even though he was on the list. How did he get on the plane? Like, are you kidding me? Yeah. And they, it, you know. What they can just, you do? They weren't talking to each other. They didn't yeah. communicate. There was no. And that was another thing in the, the docu. I think it was the documentary. I can't. They run together a sure. little bit. But it said there was just no. There was no plan. There was no precedent. Like when they when they grounded all of the airplanes that day, mm-hmm. there was no thing that said they should do that. But someone just decided it needed to happen, which makes sense. And they were like, "Who gave you the authority to do this?" Well, and, I don't know. He did. I don't know. He did. And like, he was like, "I just made the call because the rule book's gone at this point." Right. And then like scrambling the fighter jets. Are, are we really gonna? fire on those oh I have things oh. to say about that yeah it's so so I'm jumping up no jumping forward a little bit one of my my favorite and worst parts of the book was the slow terrible response time of that morning so they knew that plane one and plane two had been hijacked they knew of it the plane hit the pentagon they're like okay we have a situation clearly they were trying to ground all of these planes and Dick Cheney got himself on the phones and started calling people. And he's the one that said, we need to shoot down any planes mm-hmm. that won't respond. And mm-hmm. so of course the um, secretary of defense is like, I'm sorry. And Dick Cheney's like, no, 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 no. We need to, this is, this is my call to make. This is what we're going to, he's like, but have we run it by the president? Meanwhile, George Bush is in an elementary school. He has heard the news and has continued to sit in on this class that he's Mm -hmm. in, which granted, there's not much he can do when a terrorist attack is happening. The thing that I watched said that he knew the first one had hit when he sat down. He didn't know the second one had hit until the guy interrupted him. And then he stayed. And then he stayed. Yeah, because yeah. they still didn't know at that point right. what was really happening. Because so, one could be an accident. Two, that's something different. And so I understand that he was the president. He was scheduled to be here for these kids. And they've mm-hmm. probably looked forward to meeting the president. And you can't just tell a bunch of kids exactly. what's happening. And you can't haul ass out of a school because then they're going to be freaking out. And again... There's not much you can do when something is happening a thousand miles away. Mm-hmm. But he still stayed. Like, it was just a real sketchy, weird mm-hmm. situation. Meanwhile, Dick Cheney's making phone calls saying we need to and a shoot, down, shoot down planes that aren't responding. So they spent half an hour trailing a 747 that was not hijacked. Meanwhile, the Pennsylvania plane mm-hmm. wasn't responding but they were going a completely opposite direction landed in ohio with this plane they made them land and sit in the bomb area of the tarmac for two hours before letting them Im- disembark the plane oh wow simply because they thought that that plane was hijacked because the the pilot didn't respond quick enough to their mm-hmm. um 
to their code words and mm-hmm. asking him for st- it's crazy they wasted so much and then time I, I saw that um air force one was in the air mm-hmm. but then the pentagon was hit and they're like we can't go back to washington right. where are we gonna go so they were in the air for like an hour and a half they were they the decided. only plane in the air above u.s but they couldn't decide where to go and so at one point they ended up in a, at an air base in louisiana yeah and they said it's been and too long since the, he's been seen he has to make an appearance right and the air base had no idea that air force one was about to land they were just like hey someone's landing and mm-hmm. they're like okay oh it's air force one yeah and then they ended up in um nebraska or oklahoma or something like that i can't remember and, yeah and it was crazy and at that point he's like i'm going back to washington yeah. i don't he, care what you say he made the right call he was like i need to be there and mm-hmm. even though his secret service and but his his press secretary was like actually it would be a good idea like if you went back mm-hmm. but that night um george bush notoriously went to bed very early so he wanted uh, they tried to get him to sleep in the bunker below and he's like no i'm going to my bed so he and laura bush are in bed and at 11 30 secret service hauls ass into yeah. their room like there's a part about that go back in and it was the fbi had more people oh no no in. it's one of ours it's it, fine. It's do you not? Could you not talk? Right. Like what are you doing? Like, yeah. ugh. but they thought that the Dick Cheney made the call that they didn't want all of the people that were in charge of the government to be in the same place. Right. Like he wanted George Bush somewhere else since he was in Washington, and they took the Speaker of the House and put him on a helicopter and flew him away. And he said, "I didn't even know where we were going." Mm. Which I understand not wanting everyone of power mm-hmm. in one place. That makes sense. But Dick Cheney pissed me the hell off. Making His wife all of was, these calls. Um, she was making notes. Yeah, she was in the she bunker with him. She was taking notes, listening show. to all this information mm-hmm. that really shouldn't be privy to her, yeah. and taking notes. And she said that one of the strangest things she observed was that there was a plate of cookies in the middle of the table with lace doilies under them. Hmm. She's like, why were, why were those there? That's nice. Yeah. Let's eat cookies and watch people die. Yeah, it was. she said it was very surreal. And... Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's no real etiquette to to yeah, deal I mean, with terrorism because yeah. even during Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. there was a war happening. Right. It wasn't like it was. It, it was, was shocking, but it wasn't like <gasps> yeah. Like this one to the powers that be kind of came out of nowhere, mm-hmm. and especially to the American people, they're mm-hmm. like, the heck just happened here, yeah. you know? Because again, we're America, like. Bad things don't happen here. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. What else you got? Anything else on this book? No, because a lot of it has to do with yours and the breakdown of communication, Mm -hmm. things like that. The one thing I will add is that towards the end of the book, when they were talking about the aftermath, what to do, all this stuff, we jumped into Iraq. Yes. One of the documentaries I watched, it said the, uh, one of the... One of the advisors was in the bunker, and she was like, okay, what are the next steps? And Dick Cheney was like, we need to bomb Iraq. And she was like... Because we need to show our power. She's like, we already know it's Afghanistan. Why are we going to bomb Iraq? And he's like, everyone needs... She said, everyone just needs to go get some sleep. We're being crazy right now. Yeah, I have some feelings about Mr. Cheney. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Did you see, I'm a big Oscars person. I watch them every year. Mm -hmm. And when Christian Bale won for, oh my gosh, his speech was amazing. He won for portraying Dick Cheney. And what is the movie? What is that movie? I I don't know what it's called. I'll have to look it up. I'm sorry. Crap. But he goes up there and literally said, thank you, Satan. For getting me in character to portray this person. Yeah, and he's like, what terrible person can I portray next? And like, goes on and a And I little... guess, I I was, when 9-11 happened, that was 2001, I was 12. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I knew that bad things were happening, and it was scary. And my evil study hall teacher made me, she went into this whole, like, it's the end times ready yourselves made it sound like the terrorists were coming to our school mm-hmm. absolutely terrifying yeah, no, just everyone was so terrified they didn't yeah. know what to do and in chattanooga we're so close to nuclear power i mean oak ridge was too mm-hmm. like 
it was just what do we do like how do you protect yourself from something yeah. like that and there was one plane and there was two and then there was three and then there was four and it's like when is this what gonna next? stop yeah how far is this gonna go we don't know what's coming next yeah so i didn't really i was young i wasn't really involved in politics at that young i mean i was i was playing sports and liking boys so i didn't really understand the administration and things like that so even even now when christian bale said that i was like well what the hell did dick cheney do well now i know dick cheney did a lot not a fan yeah dick cheney did a lot yeah but no like that that still has stuck in my head you know i read so much that i don't retain everything that's why i have to make such meticulous notes when i when Mm -hmm. we do this but that i didn't even have to write it down because he was just like we need to bomb it because we need to show that we're we're not gonna back down and but why but why iraq yeah yeah it's just bananas the whole thing Mm -hmm. yeah completely crazy Okay, well, my next book is one that I had been wanting to read for a while and never really gotten around to it. Same. And that is extremely loud and incredibly close, and that's by Jonathan Safran Foer. And, oh, guys. (laughs) I have heard mixed reviews on how this book is written, Mm -hmm. how how it comes across. So talk to me about that. I think... I haven't had a ton of time to process it because I... She literally finished it right before we recorded. And that's because it's taken me two weeks to finish it because I couldn't read too much of it at one time. Mm -hmm. It was brutal. It was so brutal. But it was was also beautiful. It was also inventive. It Mm -hmm. was... There was so much. It was yeah. so, so much. So let, let me back up. And it's the story of Oscar, who is nine, and his dad died on September 11th. Mm-hmm. And the story is told from Oscar's perspective. So he's a nine-year-old boy who's just lost his father. So f- getting into that mind frame as an adult person, being able to, yes, I can see that this is the mind of a child was brilliant okay and it was fascinating because i I think he may he may have either been really thrown off by the grief or he may have been a little autistic okay but he was definitely very very different kid okay well he finds a lock or a key he finds a key in his dad's stuff and he doesn't tell anybody about it, but he goes on this adventure to try to find what the key goes to. Mm-hmm. And he spends months and months and months in trying to figure this out, thinking it's going to bring him closer to his dad, help him remember his dad. And it's about everyone he meets on his adventure. But it's also about his grandparents. It's about his, his dad's parents? His dad's parents. Okay. His grandmother and his grandfather were also survivors of the Dresden, Germany bombings in World War II. Okay. So the, the parents survived bombings, the grandparents. Then the son dies in 9-11. Mm-hmm. And then the grandson is piecing it all together. Gotcha. So there's also viewpoints of the grandparents in here as well. And the grandparents are both, they're not quite whole. Okay. Because they have experienced so much trauma. Okay. And it's just, it's, it's, I I don't even have words for it. It's heartbreaking. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, Oscar, his mom finding a man that's a friend and he's like you can't love anyone else and him dealing as a nine-year-old and it's two years after so his dad was he was seven when his dad died it's two years after okay and him dealing with that grief on such an epic scale but being able to express it was just incredible Mm -hmm. and there are some quotes in here that I, i just they're beautiful quotes about life so one of the quotes was from oscar and he said, he said, I couldn't tell what he was feeling because I couldn't speak the language of his feelings. 
That's such a, a childish thing to say, but in a way that only a child could express something that we could mm-hmm. not. I, I couldn't tell what you were feeling because I don't speak the language of your feelings. That's just like, yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. And then his grandmother has a quote in here and it says, I regret that it takes a life to learn how to live. Mm. Because if I were able to live my life again, I would do things differently. Of course. But it takes living your life to learn how to live it. Uh, just beautiful quotes like that. But also, during the book, there were little, like, tricks of the writing. Like, when Oscar is explaining something or he's picturing something, there'll be a picture in the book. Like a doorknob. A doorknob. There's pictures of, like, several doorknobs mm-hmm. throughout the book. Or... The grandfather's writing, and he says, I'm running out of space. I'm going to start writing on top of words. Because he's never going to send the letters to anyone. He's just trying to get his feelings out. Sure. So then there's pages that are just blank, where it's, he wrote over what he had written over. Gotcha. Because he was running out of space. Hmm. And then there were pages where... We'll need to take pictures of these so we can post them on Instagram. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And there were pages where it was just one sentence. Hmm. In the middle of the page. And the rest of the page was blank. And then Oscar, his big thing was, he said, I I need to understand how he died. So I'll stop inventing ways that he died. Mm. Did he die in the elevator? Did he jump from the building? Did he burn to death? Did he die in the stairwell? He's like, I need to know how he died. So I stopped picturing all these other terrible things in my mind. Mm -hmm. Because none of it's good. Right. And he's a kid, you know, yeah. like, oh. And at the end of the book, you know, the people who would jump out mm-hmm. of the building. So he has a stack of these pictures. And he he lines them up backwards. So the person's going back into the building. Mm. And he imagines that that's his dad. And that's, that's how the book ends. Hmm. But it's just it's so much tragedy. In this one family, mm-hmm. so much learning how to live, not being able to get past things, not being able to overcome tragedy, but it, living anyway. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things, I can't remember because I didn't take a picture of it, but it was the grandma. She said, we were busy making a living, not living. Hmm. And it was like, right? Like, we're making livings, but are we living? Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was just, there are no proper words to explain the emotional scope of the, of the book. Yeah. I will never read it again (laughs) because I don't like torture. I'm not a masochist, (laughs) but it was really good. And I think everyone should read it. And I think it is on some required reading lists for schools now. Sure. Um, How many stars did you give it? Or are you going to give it? Um, I I am wavering between three and four. Okay. The only reason I would hedge down to three is because it is not my cup of tea. Okay. It It's not historical fiction. Mm-hmm. It's real. Mm-hmm. Like It's a novelization of a real thing. Yeah. Right. And it's like, it. it's just not my most favorite it's not something I'm ever going to read again. Sure. But I'm glad I read it. Mm-hmm. But it's not like, oh my God, this is the best book in the whole wide world. Gotcha. But yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't processed it fully yet. Hmm. I need some days to process. <laughs> but those are sometimes the best books when, you, when you're just like, I don't know what I feel. Mm-hmm. I, need to, I need to let it simmer. Yeah. But there was just so many beautiful quotes that would just hit you out of nowhere. Hmm. Like... Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was like Daisy Jones and the Six was like yeah. that for both of us. Just like, wow, that that is a thing that makes you feel something. Mm-hmm. And you have to just take a second yeah. and just let that sink in. Yeah. But I don't know. I keep going back to the I don't speak the language of your feelings. Oh, my gosh. Like, that's just brilliant. Yeah. But yes, no, this was a really, really rough episode for us to prepare for. Yeah. It was difficult, but I think that it's something that we needed to do. Yeah, and I'm a very curious person, so things that I don't know, that I care about, I want to know, Mm -hmm. and I've just never, 
really dug into this event. Yeah, me either. I knew, I knew like a surface level understanding of right. it. Right. Um, I remember the aftermath. I remember being a teenager and being scared that my 18-year-old boyfriend would be drafted because that was a big mm-hmm. fear for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just, I remember the aftermath, but I don't, I didn't fully know the events of the day, things like that. Yeah. And so I, of course, wanted to know, but I knew that it was going to be difficult to talk myself into mm-hmm. it. And so I was like, okay, now I have to. <laughs> right. And that's why I had kept putting off extremely loud and incredibly close because I knew it was going to be rough. Yeah. But this, this forced me into reading something that I wanted to read, but that I kept kind of like, eh, it'll be there later. It'll be there later. It's not like I didn't want to read it. I did. Right. But I don't know in my mind how I separate the Holocaust books from this, but it was just different to me. Yeah. And I guess because it's something you have lived through. And that is true. And one thing I kept thinking with all of the documentaries I was watching is this is an event that we have so much visual mm-hmm. of like we have video of literally everything yeah you can see every single bit of it mm-hmm. and there are horrific images yes. you can google in one of the documentaries i watched it was like jumping out the people jumping out of the buildings and mm-hmm. you could hear them landing <gasps> that's terrible and, and one of the guys talking. died because of that like mm-hmm. People died because people fell on yeah. them. And they said there were like 200 people or so that jumped. And mm-hmm. in, in just... Uh, and I knew it was going to be rough. And maybe you're right that it is something I personally lived through. So mm-hmm. it's You more, remember it. Yeah. It's more relevant to me. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the Holocaust stuff is a, a past thing. It was an know. event that happened in the internet day and age. So it's it's something that we have, like you said so much documentation of whereas the Oklahoma City bombing and then of course the Pearl Harbor things like that we know it happened but there's no we didn't see it yeah there's no video of it no anything like that and so it's just it's it's not something we can fully comprehend Mm -hmm. and so yeah I I I don't know it might just be more meaningful to us and and more difficult for us to read because it is something we remember the day like there are kids now that don't remember this day there i think it's like our parents used to say where were you when kennedy got killed and yeah this is our thing yeah this is our kennedy assassination Mm -hmm. yeah because everyone that you talk to knows exactly where they were when Mm -hmm. they found out about the the twin towers and watched it like yeah you know school was was over for the day we just we just pulled in tvs and watched yeah it was really i'm i'm really glad we did this episode i know that we laugh a lot Mm -hmm. but sometimes we need to have a little more yeah and i promise the next episode we will be way more fun yeah we're hilarious all the time though but (laughs) we we can be serious sometimes when we need to be yeah but before this episode ends i do want to say when this episode drops, it's going to be my mom's birthday. So I'm going to say happy Aww. birthday, mom. Happy birthday, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the horrible <laughs> sad episode. <laughs> She'll be okay. She likes it. She likes the podcast. She listens every week. She is way more in tune with what you read than I read, which is interesting. That's because she, I don't read about World War II so much. But she likes all the true crime and the serial killers and all of that stuff. <gasps> Your she, mom's weird like me? <laughs> I wouldn't call my mom weird, but yeah. I'm weird. I accept it. You're super weird. That's fine. But yeah, she likes a lot of the same books that you like. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. But Happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday, mom. <laughs> I think next episode we're gonna be back to what we were reading lately. Yes, and then we're gonna do the soul of an octopus. Yay for our buddy Reed. So that um, if y'all want to join in on that, prepare for I'm, that. I'm excited about my octopus book. Yeah, mm-hmm. I ordered it. I'm actually getting a physical copy of it. Oh my goodness! I, I was know. gonna say I just saw that it was available on the library's website on audio and it was only nine hours as opposed to like it could be much more yeah so. my um, looming tower was 16 
Oh, that's not that bad. Michelle Obama's was like 40 hours. It took oh, wow. me two full weeks. I think that's because she talked so slow. She did, and it was on the actual disc. And so I couldn't speed it up. Oh. See, like, I sped the looming tower up to 1.7. I was like, 1. woman, there are seconds in between <laughs> words. Get it together. That's so funny. But yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys for bearing with us through this episode. And hopefully that you'll check out some of these books and enjoy some of this stuff. Yeah. And, and tell get, us if get you, more information. Tell us if you cried too. Good Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Awful. I cried a lot. So many times. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.